This morning for our text, we're looking at John 9. So if you would turn to that, uh, if you're looking at your pew Bible, it's on page 1139. So you can open to that. Last week, we took a look at the beginning of John 8, where Jesus had an interaction with the woman who was caught in adultery. This morning, we'll sort of follow that theme a little bit in that we're going to look at this passage where Jesus has another interaction with a man who was blind, who was born blind, and to see uh, the truths that Jesus is going to teach us from that particular man. So let's look at John 9, starting at verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. No one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. May the Lord bless this reading and the opening of his word to our lives. You and I live in an incredibly complicated but wonderful and beautiful world. No matter what the X-Files tells you, this is the only planet in our solar system that sustains life and has life like ours. That's not how the world has always viewed this solar system. It wasn't that long ago that Aristotle and Ptolemy put forth a theory that the earth was at the center and everything revolved around it. A theory is that we are a geocentric uh, cosmos. That turned out not to be true. There's another theory that not too long ago that there was a way that you could get on the Missouri and that it would hook up with the Columbia and there'd be a northwest passage uh, through the Rockies connecting the Atlantic and the Pacific. In 1803, two guys named Lewis and Clark found that there is no way, no northwest passage. You had to actually climb those mountains. What I'm trying to say is that our assumptions shape and control our reality. The way in which we approach the world, the way in which we see the world, the way in which we assume it works, the way it ought to work, shapes our reality. And because of that, It tends to control the form. It tends to control the information uh, that we take in. That is, there is a lot of information that is out there. 
But no human being can take all the information that is out there in. What tends to guide us, what tends to uh, filter that information is what often has been described as the ladder of inference, this idea that you have assumptions and beliefs that affect the information that affirms those assumptions and beliefs. And those things that contradict your assumptions and beliefs get discounted or are pushed away because they don't affirm what you assume and what you believe about the world. Jesus has been, from the very beginning of John, challenging our assumptions about our world. Not just our world, but the world beyond this world. That there, there's something greater going on. And he's been challenging the way we think it works. And so we've come to another a set of assumptions, another encounter, not just with this man born blind, but the whole neighborhood is afire with controversy. The Pharisees have got questions. Even his parents are dragged in to this conversation, all carrying with them assumptions and beliefs, just like everyone in this room. Isaac said that we, we're all alike. Well, this is one of the ways in which we're all alike. Even if we have different assumptions and beliefs, we all have assumptions and beliefs. And Jesus wants to confront them because some of them, for all of us, are wrong. And they need challenging. Remember, I told you that the context of this text and the context of the last couple of chapters have been a party, a festival. It's on the Jewish worship calendar that they would have these festivals that would remind them of what God has done for them. And one of them is called the Feast of Booths or a festival of booths or tabernacles. And and it was to celebrate God's provision for them in the wilderness. And one way that they highlighted that time was they, they, they made a million tents right outside Jerusalem where they would live during this week-long party to remind them that they used to live in tents in the wilderness for 40 years. And a further reminder of that was they... They constructed for this party four big, long columns as tall as the walls of the temple. And they put these humongous bowls to hold 65 liters of fuel that they would light at night so that the whole area would be lit with flame and that young men would dance all night long under these lights. We said last week that this is the occasion in which Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I bring light into darkness. Our text today is the next day. The torches have gone out. The men have stopped dancing. And Jesus has left the temple. And as his procession leaves, he notices a beggar who is blind from birth. And so the very first assumption that I want to address this morning is, I think, one we all share. Or at least... My friends share, because I hear it all the time. If something bad happens, then someone must be at fault. Jesus saw the man, and he stopped a whole procession. And then in verse 3, we find out that it's not just any man, but a man who has been born blind, who's been begging outside the temple. They know this man because 
his entire life has been begging for money. And he heard Jesus say, he didn't see Jesus, he heard Jesus say, I'm the light of the world. He feels mud being put upon his eyes. He can literally feel the fingers as it presses this mud into his broken eyes. And he hears the man who is pushing that mud into his eyes utter, now go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Some of his friends, maybe family, grab him by the hand because he can't get there. It's almost three football fields away. Somebody grabs him by the hand and walks him the distance to the pool and he washes. And the next thing we find out about this guy is that he comes back seeing. And that starts a debate about the way in which we see the world. And the way it ought to be. His whole neighborhood is in an uproar. And they're asking questions like, are you the man born blind? They know he's the man born blind. Every day of their lives they go to the temple. We tend to think of the temple like the church. You come here on Sundays. Maybe a few other days of the week. Everybody who lived in Jerusalem went to the temple every day. It's where the bank was. It's where your groceries were shopped for. It's it's where you did your social. It's where justice was dispensed. Every day, people went to the temple and right outside were beggars. Hundreds, if not thousands of them. Because if you're a beggar, where do you go? You go where the people are. And so they're right outside. They know who he is. They might have diverted their eyes on the way in to hope that, that he doesn't see him. But at least they won't see him. They know who he is. They just want to know how you're healed. That's what verse 10 asks. How how did this happen? And his simple answer in verse 11 is Jesus healed me. The disciples asked the question about guilt based on their assumption. Verse 2, whose fault is it? That he is blind, is it his his fault or is his parents' fault? The assumption is, is that bad things happen because someone's been bad. And Jesus' answer in verse 3 is not, This man nor his parents are to blame, but the work of God might be displayed. You see, for the average person, this is not how the world works. It's It's almost like Christians believe in karma. An Eastern thought that... If you do bad things, it's going to come around and do bad things to you. Almost like a slot machine. If you put good deeds in, good consequences come out. Bad deeds put in, get bad consequences. And though good and uh, bad actions do have consequences, hear me, nobody's saying they don't. But it is only one-third of the answer of why bad things happen. It's incomplete. It's not even passing. On an exam. If Christians had to take exam why bad things happen and you just put bad things happen because people do bad things, you flunk the exam. There are two other reasons why bad things happen. The Bible tells us that there is a thief that wants to kill and destroy. That paranoia you feel that somebody's out to get you, there's someone out to get you. There really is. We underestimate 
his attempt to destroy what God has created. And when we say the only reason this is happening is because this guy did something wrong or his parents did something wrong, one, it's not true in all cases. The other reason the Bible tells us is that bad things happen isn't just because people do bad things or that there's an evil one out to cause bad things, but you and I live in a broken world and therefore bad things happen because it's broken. It's not working the way in which it was designed to work. And when we have a bigger picture, when we don't have the assumption that just because something bad happens to me or a friend of mine, then I've got to figure out what they have done wrong. You see how destructive and hurtful that assumption is in the life of the church. That we end up crucifying our friends because we're trying to root out the evil in them. And we tend to take one passage in the Old Testament where someone hid some stuff he stole and made it a blanket statement that if something bad happens, it's because we stole something. When you've got an evil one who is just as at work and even more committed to your destruction than you are. Isn't that amazing? There's somebody who wants to destroy your life more than you. But we're also in an incredibly dysfunctional world since the fall. Jesus is talking about something more mysterious and more hopeful than that superficial understanding of why bad things happen. The chaos and misery of this present world is being replaced. That's why you feel the frustration. If this is the way it is always going to be, you wouldn't feel frustrated. You would say, Kesara, Sarah. This is the way it is. But you know that we're moving from this broken world to a new creation. It should sound familiar to you because that's exactly what happened in Genesis 1. How does Genesis 1 talk? The world was void and without form. That is, it was empty and it had no order. It had chaos. And in comes creation. That's the same thing that Jesus has come to do now into the chaos of the brokenness to bring order and beauty and goodness and truth to where all the brokenness is. Jesus has entered this dark place to begin to usher in the next. A world where broken things and broken people are made new. This is the healing that this healing is supposed to be pointing to. you got to understand, there are hundreds, if not thousands of broken people outside the temple. Why this one and why not everyone? Because he's taking this one to point to the ultimate. That's why something bigger is going on here. Something more profound, more mysterious, more wonderful, more hopeful than simply one man who was blind now sees. But in order for us to see that, to understand what's going on in our world, you and I have to dismantle some of our assumptions about how this world works and where it's going. This world is more darker 
than you and I are willing to admit. But the healing is more wonderful than you and I can ever hope for. Second assumption. If something new threatens the status quo, then it must be bad. When Jesus healed this man, verse 14 says it was on the Sabbath. Verse 15 says they had laws against working on the Sabbath, including healing. Because you can wait another day to healing. Why wait and do it on the Sabbath? So 16, their conclusion is, is that Jesus is a lawbreaker. And so they call in his parents. They've already interviewed the blind man, the formerly blind man. And now they're going to interview the parents because they have the same first assumption that many have. If something bad happens, it's because it was somebody's fault. So let's ask the parents. And they ask him in in verse 18, how come he sees now? And the parents throw their son under the proverbial bus. In verse 20, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Here's the throwing him under the bus. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Hardly the statement of a loving parent. They're afraid. They're afraid. We see that in in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared. They fear that they're going to get tossed out of the temple. They're going to lose their membership card. They're going to lose their access to groceries. They're going to lose their access to the bank. They're going to lose their savings, their worship. Which brings us to the second assumption that is about fear. What makes these Pharisees not celebrate the healing? They knew this man. They had seen him every day. And they knew Jesus. He just said, I'm the light of the world. They fear losing what they have. And therefore, they reject what is new. Because to them, whatever is new threatens what is old. Jesus is ushering in something new. We gather every Sunday not to celebrate what happened in the past. We gather to celebrate what's coming. And the past started it. The past is relevant because of the future. We are not people of the past. We are the gathering of the people of the future where everything is made new. And that is made possible by the cross which happened in the past. You would think they and we would welcome the new world order. You tell any Christian, do they love the gospel? And they would say, yes. You ask them, Are you ready to change everything about you because of the gospel? Then it's not so good news. Because the new threatens the old. And we're afraid of that. And that's the power of fear in our lives. It not only blinds us from the wonder of the new, but we see the new as a threat to the old. The third assumption, if something is unknown, then it must be untrue. The second interview, there's two interviews for this poor formerly blind man. The second one, they call him in in verse 24, give God the glory. Don't give this man the glory, give God the glory. Verse 26, then they ask him again, 
How did he open your eyes? This is kind of like prepping them for the exam. They've prepped this poor man. Your answer is supposed to be when we ask this question, God did it. Who, how did your eyes open? He was supposed to say, God. He answers, do you want to follow him too? And they answer, we don't know where he comes from. Don't see this as a geographical question. This is an identity question. They don't follow anybody unless they know where are they from? Under whose authority do they teach? That's what the Pharisees are asking him. And when he says, this is the formerly blind man in verse 31, if he healed me, he must be from God. They throw him out of the temple. Why? Because it doesn't meet their third assumption about ignorance. What we don't know must be untrue. The Pharisees question Jesus' legitimacy because they don't know. Jesus has been claiming he was from God, but their assumptions would not let them accept that. In fact, when they wanted to be pejorative to Jesus, they called him Jesus of Galilee. Because there's a, an assumption that is part of this culture that says that nothing good comes out of Galilee. The thought that he comes from God is beyond their thinking. The compelling argument in this whole passage comes from the formerly blind man. When he says, no one can talk like this man talks and no one can do what this man does unless he's from God. You see, they wanted him to give glory to God. And that's exactly what he did. Therefore, you and I need to be very, very careful about our convictions. Because if we're not allowing them to be challenged of their veracity, then we are doing the same thing they're doing. Last assumption. If I can see, then I must not be blind. That sounds a little obvious, but not so obvious. Verse 35, Jesus heard that the Pharisees had cast out the man. And so what does he do? He goes to the man who had been formerly blind. And Jesus asks him this question in verse 35. Do you believe in the Christ? His answer is, well, who is he? And he says in verse 37, I am he. And then in verse 38, the formerly blind man says, well, Lord, I believe. And therefore, we've come to the fourth, fourth uh, assumption, and it's about rejection. Guilt, fear, ignorance. Rejection. Jesus says in verse 39, I came so that the blind see and those who see may become blind. He's no longer talking about physical sight. He is saying his teaching, his new world order will be accepted by some but rejected by others. The very presence of him leads some to faith but others to disbelief. And last week we said disbelief is caused by darkness. And Jesus defines darkness in this passage as a kind of blindness. They have assumptions about the way things ought to be. They're living their lives in light of these assumptions and beliefs. And these assumptions and beliefs are not allowing them to consider that Jesus is from God. And that he is bringing a new creation to earth. Therefore, I challenge you. 
I challenge me. We all have these assumptions. Do you allow anyone to challenge them? Do you allow the scriptures to challenge your assumptions? Do you allow Jesus, his teaching, his miracles, his time on earth to challenge your assumptions? Therefore, if you allow Jesus to do that, you you too need to allow other people to allow their assumptions to be challenged in their own time. In a room like this, there are all kinds of assumptions about the way things ought to be, the way we think they are. But you and I cannot force the truth upon anyone else. That's the work of the Spirit. We can provide a warm and accepting and loving environment whereby people can come in here and say, I just don't see the world that way. But because they keep coming and we want to encourage them to keep coming, those challenges get, those assumptions get more and more challenged until they see a new way. They see a new life and they see a new truth. We're going to see this in just a few chapters. But the first step for everyone in this room, including the preacher, is that you have to admit you're blind. There are places in your life, in your thoughts, in your assumptions, in your beliefs that you've got blind spots. And then you have to allow the truth to challenge them. And sometimes that comes in the form of a friend. Sometimes an enemy. And sometimes it's just your own reading. But you have to be open to it or we will find ourselves in the same spot as these Pharisees. Blind, but they think they see. May God make us a church in which eyes are always opening, where blind people see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. That was the definition of the movement of this new creation. When John's disciples went to Jesus and asked, are you the Messiah? He quoted that passage in the Old Testament where he said, go tell him the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, and the dead rise. That's the movement of the new kingdom on earth. That's how we know it's working is because the blind see. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to be in your word, to gather, to allow, first of all, to recognize that we've got blind spots, all of us, no matter how mature or immature, how long you've been in the church or new to the church, everyone has this in common, our own understanding of the way the world ought to work, the way we think it does work. What is going on here? that you're bringing a new creation that is challenging the old creation, taking that which is formless, chaotic, and broken, and bringing new form and new order and healing. Help us to see through this one formerly blind man who now sees that all of us in this room have been blind from birth, but we now see. May we celebrate that. May that be our mission to tell the blind that they can see and the deaf they can hear, the lame they can walk, 
and the dead that can rise. In Jesus' name, amen.